And if that's a little scary to you, we have the perfect series for you, a brand new series starting today called Strings, and it's all about fear. Before I get there, I just want to let you know, are you excited about the building that's going up? I mean, every day you're driving in. I, mean, I got to tell you, when they first cleared out the land where it was just kind of the pad out there, I'm like, wow, this looks really small. And then they put up all that steel, and I was like, wow, this looks really big. You know, it's cool to see that happening, and uh, we're excited about what God's doing. And really, whole thing is uh, because of your generosity, we're able to make room for growth. And uh, that's our, our student center, and we're excited about impacting uh, the teens, the students of our area, our county, our region. Uh, we want to impact them, and this is the place to do it. So, uh, so keep that in your prayers that all that goes smooth. We're, we're excited about what's coming down the pike. Well, we're talking about fear the next several weeks, and it's said that the most common command in the Bible is do not fear. Do not fear. Well, right there, that should tell us that fear is common, maybe even more common than we realize. And uh, fears are usually all about what might happen. Fears are about the future. It's the might. That's the word that haunts us. Fear trades in the market of possibility. What could happen? It's the tyrant of the imagination. We let that kind of run away with us sometimes. And if you have struggles with fear, you're not alone. Uh, no matter who you are, fear can strike all types of people. The weak and the powerful, the young and the old, the rich and the poor, all sometimes struggle with fear. Even those who have it all. It's amazing what you can find out through the internet, right? And uh, even people who we would say they seem to have everything have fears. For example, Jennifer Aniston, Cher, Whoopi Goldberg, they all are aviophobes, fear of flying. Scarlett Johansson is afraid of birds. Oprah is afraid of chewing gum. Woody Allen, and that's why I have this here because I can't remember all this. Woody Allen's afraid of insects, sunshine, dogs, deer, bright colors, children, heights, small rooms, crowds, and cancer. Wow. And famous people in the past were no different. George Washington... Uh, was terrified of being buried alive. Nixon was afraid of hospitals. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, the conqueror, had a fear of cats. I mean, it's, it's just kind of strange when you think about all the fears that people can have. And I got to tell you, this whole fear issue, I think it's broader than we realize. It not only includes the word fear, but the whole family of words that, that kind of are connected to that in some way. Words like worry, anxiety, dread, unease, alarm, distress, apprehensiveness. All these words, all these feelings that we can have, they're all related to fear. So the question is, what are you afraid of because what we're what we're going to show in this series is fears to some extent can control us so the question is what are you afraid of 
What immobilizes you? What keeps you up at night? What, what are you thinking about there when you're laying there sleeplessly? What's robbing you of your sleep? And I know some of you guys, you're, 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 you're going, Kevin, I have no fear. I'm fearless. But yet yesterday, when Marilyn and the Bucks were 21-21, you were like, no! What is it? What is it that gets By the way, I was there with some friends of mine, and they had a pretty analytical view. They weren't overreacting or anything. But you know what I heard them talking about? Well, Michigan beat these guys. You know, these guys couldn't do this to me. It's Michigan fear. You know, it's like they're not even worried about this game, but they're like, oh, no, look what's coming. What is it? What do you, well, the challenge for us is to kind of discover what our fears are. And, uh, and most people are afraid of something. And then figure it out and then practice a biblical response to it. It's interesting, as I said, fear is almost always based on the future. Yeah, ever think about what the future is to God? We basically live in the past and the future. Kind of, we live in two time zones. We think it's the present, but the present is so fleeting that by the time we figure out we're in the present, that's already in the past. So it's really the past and the future that we live in, but God exists eternally in one time zone, the eternal now. God, who created time, is outside of time. So for God, he's always there. Past, present, future. It's always now to him. And I think we can take a lot of comfort in knowing that God is above and beyond all time. Again, we're always afraid of what could happen? The test results that are due to come back, the doctor's appointment that we're scheduled for, the call that could come in the middle of the night. And here's what we're going to learn. Don't fear tomorrow because God's already there and he loves you. Don't fear tomorrow. He's already there. One of the prevalent fears in our day is disease. An illness, And that's kind of something that I wanted to talk about as we talk about different fears to start off with. In the United States, the leading causes of death are this in descending order. Heart disease, cancer, respiratory disease, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, kidney disease, and pneumonia. And then we know disease, if you've been a part of this or uh, had a loved one struggling with serious illness you know that takes a, a physical, an emotional, and a financial toll on individuals and families. And, and it, we fear disease, oddly, but eventually one or more of these diseases will catch up to us, pretty much. You get that, right? Unless we die young. I mean, that's kind of how, how it goes. They will... We, these diseases will catch up to us eventually. When we're fearful of disease, here's what happens. We des when we're fearful of disease, we desperately seek the what 
when we should be seeking the who. And I'm going to explain that. As a matter of fact, there's several passages in Scripture where people are interacting with disease. And for me, and I think maybe you'd agree, the most fearful thing about disease is not that it would strike you. The most fearful thing about disease is that maybe it would strike your child. Would you agree with that? That's, that's more scary, right? Well, actually, Jesus interacted with people just in that kind of a situation, and that's what I want to talk to in Scripture, and it's uh, one story is in John chapter 4. If you'd like to turn there, uh, we'll go through a father who has a son that's dying and seeks out Jesus. When you get to John chapter 4, there's, a, there's another more famous story about the woman at the well. Jesus is traveling uh, from Jerusalem. He goes through Samaria. He strikes up a conversation with, with a woman at the well outside of a city. Uh, she he tells her some things that makes her think that Jesus is maybe more than, than can be easily perceived. And she challenges her town that maybe he could be the Christ. And they invite Jesus to stay for a couple of days. They talk. Jesus teaches them. And finally, they come to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, which is significant. They're Samaritans. They're half Jewish, half non-Jewish, looked down by the Jews. They come away convinced Jesus is the Savior of the world. They have the right kind of belief. Now, this is interesting that John points us out, and that's kind of the last phrase before the text we get into, they believe he's the Savior of the world, because John, all through his book, keeps pointing out that people believe things about Jesus, but often their belief or, or their faith is inadequate. And I don't mean inadequate for to be healed or something like that. I mean inadequate about who they see Jesus as, inadequate for salvation, inadequate to have a relationship with God. And so John keeps pointing us out kind of what inadequate belief is and what adequate belief is. And that kind of ties in to the story. It's a great passage of Scripture, John 4, beginning with verse 43. So he leaves there through Samaria, and then he goes in um, to, to Galilee. And here's, here's how it happens. After the two-day, verse 43... After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified. Now, this is kind of interesting wording. For, and, and sometimes you might have a Bible that, that got rid of the for because they couldn't figure out what it was there for. But the for or because, it's for because, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So the reason they get rid of that difficult word is, well, he's saying a prophet has no honor in his own country, and that's why he goes to his own country, Galilee. But there's something deeper going on here. Look at the next, the next verse. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. And actually, this word received also has the connotation of they welcomed him. So we have kind of a, an odd thing that's said here. He goes to his home country, Galilee. Remember, he is raised in Nazareth. And he goes there because no prophet has honor in his hometown. So we're going, okay, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then when he gets there in Galilee, because he just said no prophet has honor he, in his hometown, when he gets to his home area, they welcome him. They receive him. And then it kind of explains uh, a little bit about that. Have it, why? Having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast 
for they themselves also went to the feast. So he's talking about this, and he's saying, well, they received him. And again, you have to look at this just a little bit deeper. If you study this out a little bit, you realize this is just unusual. He goes to his hometown because a prophet's not received by his hometown, not honored in his hometown. And then when he's there, they do receive him because they saw him do some things in Jerusalem when they were there for the feasts. And what you have, it's John talking about this inadequate belief and belief. He's saying, yeah, they welcome him because, hey, he's the hometown boy that made it good. He caused the stir at the feast in Jerusalem. So they're looking at him, and he's one of us, so they want him to come, and they're hoping that he'll do some of these signs and wonders, some of these miracles here in the hometown so they can see this stuff. The problem was... Jesus left Jerusalem because he had done some of those things. He caused a bigger and bigger crowd to follow. That became problematic for Jesus at this time in his ministry. That's part of the reason he left. Now he comes, and what they are wanting is to see some stuff, but they're really slow on accepting Jesus for who he is. They just want the signs. They want the wonders. Not so much are they seeing Jesus as the Son of God. And why? Because they're familiar with Jesus. They grew up with Jesus. He didn't do any miracles the whole time he was growing up in Nazareth. So now, oh, he can do this stuff, but they're just not seeing the bigger picture as to why all that's happening. Verse 46. Therefore, he came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, royal official here means the king's official. The king, or kind of king in the area, was Herod Antipas. Herod is the guy who beheaded John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ, also Jesus' cousin, half-cousin or whatever. And so he kills John the Baptist. This is the Herod. This guy, in service to King Herod is desperate. He comes to Jesus and he's got a problem because his son was sick and he knows his son is going to die. And so he's a well-off man, he's a rich man, he's well-connected, uh, every, everything's good in that way, but he realizes no matter how well-connected he is, there's nothing he can do to stop his son from dying. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, I hope not, where you feel like you're losing your child and there's nothing you can do to prevent it. Total helplessness. And so maybe he's heard about what happened in Jerusalem. Surely he's heard of what happened at Canaan about Jesus. Remember, first miracle, turning water into wine at a wedding feast. And so he's like, give this a shot. And so he is rushing to find, hey, Jesus is back in the area. He goes to try to find him. He seeks Jesus out. Verse 47. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Again, one of the maybe toughest things, you know, as, as we as pastors deal with people 
in, in some of the hardest things in life they go through, and maybe the hardest thing in life to go through is the loss of a child. We expect to lose our parents at some point. We don't expect to lose our child. That's what this man is, is facing with. He's desperate, again, for the what, not so much the who. And that's the problem when we get fearful is we're desperately seeking the what. So he seeks out Jesus. He's heard that he could heal. Again, verse 40. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, this kind of stuns us. The man comes to Jesus, finds him in the crowd somewhere, and he's in, and he says, Jesus, come and heal my son. I'm desperate. I need you. Come with me. We've got to take care of this. And then here's Jesus' response. Unless, and the, the people's inserted there because this you is plural. Unless you all kind of see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. This is back to John's theme, what, what he's trying to teach us all through these stories. That Jesus is rebuking not only the official, but the crowd standing around saying, yeah, all, all you want is, is the signs and, and the wonders. And so he's confronting them. It kind of reminds us of another story, which also invo involves somebody asking for healing. Remember the, the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus for healing for her daughter? It's in Matthew chap chapter 15. And she comes, and she's crying out, Jesus, you know, have mercy on me. Help my daughter. Help my daughter. And then Jesus says, well, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. You guys remember? Just nod if you're with me on this. I come for the lost sheep of Israel. And then she keeps asking. She doesn't give up. She's persistent. She's desperate for her daughter. And then Jesus says something else to her, that, and it just sounds harsh to us. Remember, he says, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be good to take the children's bread away from them and feed it to the dogs. Remember that? And then the Canaanite woman has this amazing response. She's desperate for her daughter. Jesus is, is basically saying, hey, I've come for Israel, not the Canaanites first. And, and as he's saying that, the woman's, and then she doesn't even get put off by that. And Jesus said, it wouldn't be right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And she says, no, no, Lord. No, that wouldn't be right. She's saying, yes, right. But even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You remember that? She's like, no, Lord, I understand that. You're, you're right. But even the dogs get the crumbs. And Jesus, remember, he commends her. For her faith, he tells her her daughter's healed. It's the same kind of interaction. It sounds tough, but Jesus is using this, and maybe in both of these instances, sort of challenging these people as they come, you know, as to what's going on, challenging kind of their faith. People keep coming to Christ during his ministry, asking for miraculous signs to fix their immediate problems. That wasn't the point. 
that's just a fleeting fix. That's just a band-aid over the problem. What's the re- what do they call these signs for? What's the reason for a sign? The reason for a sign, Jesus is trying to point out, is to show something deeper. It's to teach something. It's not the temporary immediate fix. The, the whole point of the signs is to show, to teach, to prove that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, the Son of God. That's the whole point. As Jesus makes this point, you could just feel with the official, right? The official's like, I don't care about theology. I don't care about the argument. My son is dying. There's nothing I can do. You can help him. I think you can help him. Please. Verse 49, royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He just asks again after Jesus said that. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. The man keeps imploring Jesus, come to Capernaum. You can heal my son. Come. He's going to die any minute. We've seen this before. He has fever. He's going to die. Just come. Just come with me. Hurry up and come. And Jesus says, go. I'm not going down. He basically says, you go down to Capernaum. Your son will live. And the officer is nothing but this, just the bare words of Jesus, and he believes. Now, no doubt many in the crowd, you know, this guy comes, he sort of gets Jesus, hey, come with me, come with me, come. Jesus says, no, your son lives, and probably most people in the crowd are going, yeah, right. Because if Jesus would have said, okay, let's go, a bigger and bigger and bigger crowd would have come, everybody in the city would have gathered, and right now he's saying that's not what he's trying to do. John keeps explaining to us that right now his time had not yet come. That's why he didn't do any miracles growing up. This is all just kind of building. But for the man, somehow this, these words are enough. And so he heads home. Next verse says it this way. And as he was going down in verse 51, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. Now, notice some time's passing here. This guy hurries, he's, he's, he's 15, 20 miles away. At the crack of dawn, he heads out to go find Jesus. Jesus is in the area. He finds Jesus. About one, you know, about 1 o'clock is when they have this, the seventh hour, which is from 6 a.m., about 1. They, he has this talk with Jesus. After that, he's heading back home. In the meantime, look at it from the servant's perspective. They're familiar with disease. They know what's going on. They're in the master's house, and they realize the son is going to die. And the master is, in, is just desperate for any kind of a fix and takes off to talk to this person maybe they've never heard of, Jesus. In the meantime, while he's gone, because they don't know what's going on over there, the son 
gets well. And so they are overjoyed and they can't wait to go tell the father the joyful news that the son didn't die, that he's okay now. Fever broke, he's back up to normal. So they're rushing to tell the master and they meet him on the way. And they let him know. As the, uh, the official finds out that his son lives, it's kind of interesting because now he has to decide, okay, Jesus was right, my son lives. And now he's wondering, is Jesus a prophet in that he could tell the future that he knew my son would get better and so he sends me home saying your son's going to get better, that you're just telling me what's going to happen, even though the odds are that wasn't going to happen? Or did Jesus actually do that? He's trying to figure that out. So he asks them a question to figure that out for him. Remember the question? So he asked in verse 52. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. So he tells, as the servants come, joyful with the news, your son lives, your son lives. He says, when did this happen? And then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. You see, he checks the facts. He realizes that when his son got better was exactly when Jesus told him, hey, your son leaves. So he knows Jesus did it. And even though he believed Jesus at his word, even though he believed that Jesus could do a sign, although it was unprecedented because people weren't doing long distance anything that had never been happened, had never happened before, never heard of anything like that, he believed Jesus. But now all of a sudden we see that he has this even deeper belief. Not that Jesus could do a miracle, which he believed before, and he trusted Jesus' word, but now he's real, he puts it all together. He realizes that Jesus has to be more than just a miracle worker. He goes to the next level. It's not just that he could believe Jesus could do something. All of a sudden now he's putting it all together going, hold it. If this man could heal my son 20 miles away, this is the Messiah. He's the one. He is like, just like the Samaritans in the village in the story preceding this. He is the savior of the world, this man believes now with this deeper belief and not only him, but his household as well. And we see this kind of amazing progression in his life. And he's teaching this to his entire household. That means slaves, kids, the whole deal, that son. That kind of reminds us the most important job we have as parents, although we think it's protecting our child, and that's why we feel so helpless when they have disease. Really, our most important job as a parent is to point them to Jesus, disciple them, show them, point them to Jesus, that they would become followers, that they would have a passion to serve him. You see, when fearful, don't just desperately seek out the what the immediate fix. 
that this is what I need from you. This is when I want it to happen. This is how I want it to happen. By the way, Jesus did not do that the way the guy wanted it done. Did you notice that? When we're fearful, what we need to do is desperately seek the who. And we do that by turning to the right person, Jesus, with the right kind of belief. Turn to Jesus, the Son of God. And I'm not here just kind of throwing all this stuff out to say, this is not wealth, health, and prosperity. This is not, hey, come to Jesus and he will heal you of everything. I'm not saying that. Because I know there have been many people in this room that something tragic has happened to a loved one and you asked and prayed and asked and prayed and that person did not get healed. Not God's will that everyone is physically healed of their infirm, you know, whatever problems they have. And, and some people have lost somebody so suddenly that you didn't even get the chance to pray. Just gone. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't be blinded by the what you're asking for. When it's more important, we should be more desperate for the who. Jesus, a relationship with him. Think about it. Jesus is unique. Christianity is unique in all the world. Christianity is the only religion where there's a God who suffers, who experiences pain, loss, and he does it to self-sacrificially love us. So God is no stranger to that kind of suffering. And if you're suffering, and if you've experienced that kind of distress and loss because of disease, illness, and in, in yourself or somebody else, God gives us his word. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's saying, I will never desert you. If you're truly mine, I will always be there, giving you the strength to face whatever is in your life to face. Do you know, right now in our body of believers, we have people who their days, medically, their days are numbered. The doctor's telling them, you have about this long, we think. That doesn't happen because they don't have enough faith. God says he'll never leave you. God will give us the ability to handle anything that life throws us. Scripture says, consider it all joy, my brethren when you encounter various trials. And we wonder, how can that be? Well, we can have joy in the middle of trials and suffering when we focus on the who, when we focus on Jesus, who he is, how he has loved us. It's the bigger picture that John's trying to get all of us to see. A famous preacher named Charles Spurgeon once said, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health. 
And then he included, with the exception of sickness. You got to read that twice. I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give any, to any of us is health. That's the greatest blessing. Ah, with the exception of sickness, that's a blessing too, he's saying. How many of you have gone through sickness, trials, trouble, and realized that your faith in God has grown because of it? That's happened in my life. You go through something, and it's, you know, you don't know. You know, had Bell's palsy a couple years. Can't really talk right. <laughs> One half of my face isn't working. And you don't know if that's going to go away or not. But the great thing about it is, you know, you can't mess it up. You know, it's not, there's nothing you can do. So it's just all God. So you just wait and see what God's going to do. And knowing that whatever happens, it will be okay. Because God is ultimately in control. And God will never leave us, never forsake us. And we can consider it all joy, no matter what we face. And we grow to the point, and I've seen this in many people in our church, where instead of pleading for deliverance, they ask God what they can learn from this, how they can grow through this, how they can point others to him through this. And we have to respond with the right kind of belief. That's what John keeps pointing out. By the way, what's the biggest miracle in the story? You know, this amazing miracle, God heals this dying son 20 miles away. And all the people of that area that know about that, wow, huge, unprecedented miracle. That's not the biggest miracle in the story. The biggest miracle in the story is at the end of the story where it says, and the official and his entire household believed. See, that's, that's the who. Way better than healing this son to give him another 30, 40, maybe 50 years of life, probably not even that much in, in those days, is that they have eternity with God. Decades are, are droplets Decades are nothing. They're eternity alive with God. They spend eternity with him. Eternally alive in the presence of God. That's the miracle here. The big miracle. The main miracle. That's the bigger picture. And that comes through the type of belief where we're just not wanting God for something. Not just desperate for the what he might do. Because we, we know he's powerful enough to do it. We get that when we're desperate for the who. When we're desperate to just know him. To have a relationship with him. A God who suffers for us. Who loves us like that. That's, that's the most important thing. That's what we need to be desperate for. We don't have to be desperate for anything else. 
We don't have to be fearful for the future. God's already there. He's waiting for us there. Don't be desperate for the what, the immediate need, the fix. Be desperate for the to, who so that you can be with him for an eternity. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your love for us because your love for us just breaks us. And Lord, even when we see you in the ministry of Jesus respond with, with what seems tough words to an official or, or to a woman, Lord, we, we realize that's just love. It's for our benefit. It's for their benefit. It's to help us to see the bigger picture, the more important, that we, we can't just be desperate for the what. That's not what's important. We must be desperate for you. And God, make us that way. Grow us. Use whatever suffering or problems we have in our life to grow us in you, to increase our faith, to be stronger, to make a bigger impact, to point others to you. Help us to use our trials, use our suffering to grow and to reveal your goodness to the people around us. God, thanks for loving us more than we can ever imagine, even though none of us deserve it. God, thanks for loving us like that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for being here at Grace. Come back next Sunday for part two of Strings, breaking, cutting the string. Strings of fear that control you. Thanks.